You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Welcome to the September 17th edition of Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin. As the global climate strike approaches this Friday, September 20th, many people in our local community have climate change on their minds. They may be looking forward to learning about ways in which we can do our part locally to mitigate the effects of climate change. We live in an agricultural area And there is a way for local crop growers to do their part in decreasing the release of carbon into the atmosphere. In our first segment, you'll hear locally sourced science contributor Mark Sharvari. He went to view the documentary Dirt Rich. In his feature, Mark plays a little of the film and speaks with local experts who are teaching that the soil ecosystem is the largest carbon sink that we can increase quickly. Later on in the show, you'll hear Megan McElroy's interview of Ithaca College Associate Professor Chris Sinton. You'll also hear Patricia Waldron with this week's Science News and Luisa Torres with a Science Events Calendar. So without delay, let's hear Mark Sharvari's report on the film Dirt Rich. This is Mark Sharvari reporting for Locally Sourced Science. And on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon in early September 2019, I decided to attend an event in a local movie theater in downtown Ithaca because they played this movie called Dirt Rich and I was really curious what this is about. It's free? Okay. There are, there's a free seat right here in the second row. Is that seat free there too in the third row? And there's a couple in the back row as well? So Dirt Rich is actually an award-winning documentary film that shines the light on positive carbon drawdown, a natural solution to help preserve the effects of runaway global warming and cool the planet. Soil is a living miracle. In one handful of soil, there are more organisms than there are humans on Earth. And we are only beginning to understand this vast network of beings right beneath our feet. The basis of this movie is that the soil ecosystem is the largest carbon sink that we can increase quickly. And it also maintains 99% of the living biomass on the planet that regulates atmospheric chemistry, global climate, sea level, and water supply. When soil is damaged, it releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And this has had serious consequences for the climate. A few things I took away after watching the movie and reading the very informative handout that I received that only now we are realizing that the importance of the healthy soil in restoring balance to the earth. So there are a few successful methods for building and preserving healthy soil. And these were discussed in the movie. 
One of them was biochar, which is a valuable kind of charcoal made from plants and animal waste, and it is so stable that it doesn't decompose for a hundred years. The second one was creating new forests on abandoned land and farming with trees. We also heard about protecting and restoring carbon-rich wetlands. In addition to that, farming practices to resource soil, store water, protect wildlife, and grow even more food. And the last one was protecting tropical forests and wildlife from industrial agriculture, such as palm oil plantations, ranching, and monocrops. The film is dirt rich, and it's really about the agricultural solutions to climate change. So many things that we hear about climate change are about the weather disasters and and the fires and all the ways that the emissions are going up into the atmosphere and causing weather problems. The good thing about agricultural solutions is that they are true solutions. We have methods of pulling carbon out and CO2 out of the atmosphere, bringing it back onto the earth where it can be used productively and helps to us to um, answer food scarcity and how we're going to feed a large population in the globe. There are methods of doing that, and the film illustrated those. They generally go under a few big names, regenerative agriculture is one, and there are many, many different methods. Integrating crops with um, animals and livestock is very important, one of the most important. And one of the things that the film talked about, which is a new technology for most of us, it's actually a very old technology, is something called biochar, making a carbon product called biochar out of um, plant or animal waste products. We have a lot of waste. The idea that we can transform some of that into a stable form of carbon that can help us capture and sequester and hold carbon in the soil for 500 years or more is really remarkable. And there's a lot of experimenting. People will learn more about that. The event was way much more than just watching a movie. Sarah has introduced the movie, but also introduced the speakers who were there for Q&A. Professor David Wolf from Cornell University, Elizabeth Gabriel from Groundswell Center for Local Food and Farming, Nathaniel Thompson from Ibemeras Farm. And after the movie, they discussed how soil affects climate change and answered questions from the audience. While they're coming, I just want to mention, I don't know if everyone got a program or not. I only printed about 130, and there are about 200 people in this room. Yay. But um, if you can get a program, there are a lot of resources listed, including the link to the four-minute introduction video, which I think is really nice and uh, you might want to just send that through an email or, or distribute that somehow. Um, this film, Dirt Rich, is also available for rental, so it's pretty accessible as well. So now I'd like to introduce uh, three people. Let's see, why don't you come up here so everyone can see you. 
my name is Nathaniel Thompson. I'm the owner of Remembrance Farm in Trumansburg. We're a biodynamic farm, farm of about 100 acres total, with about 30 acres in vegetable production, uh, the balance in cover crops and pasture. Um, we have a herd of cows and um, a number of other species of animals as well. We've been on that farm for close to 15 years now, working hard just basically to build healthy soil um, and produce good quality food primarily for our local community, although we ship produce around the state um, as well. So. Yeah, so I'm Dave Wolf. Uh, my PhD is in ecology, plant and soil ecology. I've been at Cornell since, uh, to age myself, since the uh, mid-1980s. And uh, some of, you know, one thing I would say about the movie is it's not all quite so new as it's portrayed in that. And actually at our universities, at least Cornell University, we have probably at least a dozen scientists working on many of these types of things. Uh, going back to the, when I first got here, uh, I've been doing work on soil and water management and climate change mitigation and adaptation most of my career. And uh, we started back in the early 90s with a thing called the Soil Health Program Work Team, where we worked with some very innovative farmers around the state who recognized that their organic matter had become very sadly depleted over the past couple of generations and they didn't want to pass that on to their kids. And so uh, a lot of those farmers, as well as many of our organic farmers, we've collaborated with them and brought in some of the newest soil biology information. Uh, some of you who know me know I published a book almost 18 years ago now called Tales from the Underground, a chapter on prairie dogs and mycorrhizal fungi, and a lot of stuff you heard about today. We also at Cornell established the first uh, soil health assessment lab. So for you know decades, farmers and gar gardeners have been able to take their, their samples, soil samples in and get the chemistry measured on their soils. But the Cornell fee-for-service soil health test, which took a couple of decades to really develop, um, also measures, gives indicators of biology and, and physical aspects of soil. Currently we have, uh, for the past few years, a state-funded New York soil health program NewYorkSoilHealth.org. I've got a one-pager out there uh, about that. Um, Cornell is kind of the coordinating body, but actually there, it involves farmers, uh, state and federal government agency people, uh, nonprofits such as the Nature Conservancy, uh, American Farmland Trust, others um, all, all involved. We had a soil health summit in Albany in 2018. Um, we produced a soil health roadmap for the state uh, with the state funding with some goals. One of the four goals is focused on climate change and soil health, integrating those. So there's a lot going on. Also, um, at the federal government level, uh, well, the USDA is doing a lot of work. If you look up the USDA and our CS government organization and the EQIP program, E-Q-U-I-P, you'll see a number of things that are very innovative. And here in New York State, we're fortunate to have a a state government very supportive of this. We have the New York State Department of Ag and Markets has an agriculture and environment management program and also a climate resilient farming program, uh, both you know, getting increasing funding every year, helping farmers kind of get over a transition of some of the uh, cost benefits of transitioning to new practices. I just had uh, some of the staff from Senator Gillibrand's in my office not more than a couple weeks ago. She's on the Senate Ag Committee and very works on the farm bill and very interested in building up that equipped uh, aspect of the farm bill. So there's a lot of, I'll just bring all this up, there's a lot of good things going on. So uh, I'll stop with that. Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Gabriel and um, it's nice to see so many folks here tonight. 
Um, so I wear two hats. Um, well, I probably wear more than that, but tonight just two. I'm co-manager of an agroforestry farm called Wellspring Forest Farm in uh, Mecklenburg, Trumansburg area. Um, we raise pastured lamb and produce maple syrup, elderberry extract, um, and mushroom products, and do education on our farm. So, so that's one hat. The other hat is I'm the executive director of Brownswell Center for Local Food and Farming. We're a beginning farmer training and food justice nonprofit organization in the Finger Lakes, and we primarily teach regenerative agriculture to, to beginning farmers, and more than 94% of beginning farmers across the country are actually entering farming to practice sustainable and regenerative agriculture. So it's the trend in agriculture for small-scale agriculture, and we're, we're trying to support that. The, the concepts in the movie are not new. If we look historically and to our ancestors and to indigenous people, this is actually how the relationship was with the land. Um, we respected the land. We didn't take more than we needed. Um, I forgot what they said in the movie, but kind of you know, going back to our roots and patterning nature. And these, these are all the true things that we need to do because we've gotten so far from that. But so many of the mechanisms and the principles that were talked about in the movie are, are actually indigenous to um, black and brown people from the diaspora, from indigenous tribes here in this country. And it's a really important piece of the story to tell. And so that's also part of what Groundswell does is try to resurface these stories and make sure that they're continued to be told. And that was fantastic attendance. There were lots of people. Uh, did you expect this many people? Or how do you feel about... Who do you think attended to this event tonight? There were... 200 people here, more than there were seats in the theater. We had our choice of theaters, and we said, let's go for the biggest one available. Um, but I was surprised that 200 people came. I was hoping for at least 120. But, um, yeah, I guess people, are, people want to know that there's solutions they want to know that there are things that we can do, that farmers can do. We live in an agricultural state. Agriculture is our third, big, third largest economy after, I think, tourism and finance or something. Um, we produce a lot of wine, a lot of apples, a lot of dairy, cheese, yogurt. We are an agricultural state, and so I think it's particularly relevant here in New York we also have, you know, acres and acres and acres of trees. And the importance of protecting forestry is more and more clear to us. So it's very relevant. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You know, biochar is, is very... It's very cool and very interesting, and I think there's a lot of potential. But generally, the potential is is strongest when that where you're dealing with really severely great degraded um, soils. Um, then it can have really dramatic results um, in soils that are reasonably healthy. It's not that dramatic, really. It you know it's it's helpful for sure, but it's not um, it's not a silver bullet. Um, I don't think there really are silver bullets. Generally, anytime something seems like one, it's probably not. <laughs> Thank you. I'll add one more thing. There is a handout on the table outside for any gardeners. If you're interested in tips for how to have a, a climate-smart and climate-friendly garden and landscaping, 
look at the handout out front. We have, I don't know, like 50 ideas of ways that you can uh, look at the land around your own property and make sure that you are not adding to the carbon problem. And thank you so much for staying and thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Sarah. Do you have a science event coming up? Let us know by tweeting at us at FLX Science Radio. Also, we are always looking for new members of our team. Write to us at science at gmail.com. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. I'm Patricia Waldron with this week's science news headlines for the Finger Lakes. As the days get shorter and grayer this fall, it's tempting to ditch the sunscreen and soak up the last few remaining rays of sunlight. But researchers at Binghamton University urge everyone to keep covered up, not just to prevent skin cancer, but to protect the very integrity of their skin. Binghamton PhD student Zachary Lipsky and biomedical engineer Guy German investigated exactly how the UV radiation in sunlight damages skin. They exposed human skin to different wavelengths and different amounts of UV light and then examined the effects. They discovered that UV weakens the very top layer of skin by breaking up proteins called corneodesmosomes. These proteins act like rivets, holding together neighboring cells to create an intact barrier against the outside world. The loss of these tight contacts between cells explains why a bad sunburn often causes peeling. Additionally, they found that it's not the wavelength of UV light, but the total amount of energy the skin receives that determines the extent of the damage. Their new study appears in the Journal of the Mechanical Behavior of Biomedical Materials. Saturn's moon Titan is covered in lakes. Not the kind you'd want to visit on vacation, but lakes of liquid methane surrounded by sharp rims of jagged rock. An international team of researchers now has an explanation for how those lakes may have formed. Through explosions of nitrogen gas that, in the words of Jonathan Lenine, an astronomer at Cornell University, pops like a cork from a champagne bottle. Titan's lakes sit beneath a sky full of nitrogen. At cooler times in Titan's history, that nitrogen may have turned to liquid nitrogen rain that puddled in cracks and crevices in Titan's rocky crust. Through heating, those puddles could turn into pressurized pockets of gas that would explode violently to create the jagged craters which would then fill with liquid methane. Similar craters may also occur on Neptune's moon Triton. Lenine and his co-authors published the study in the journal Nature Geoscience. And finally, scientists have identified two new species of electric eel, and one species holds the record for the highest amount of electricity generated by a living creature, with a whopping 860 volts. An international team of scientists, including Casey Dillman of the Cornell University Museum of Vertebrates, discovered the two species in rivers within the Amazon basin and nearby Guiana Shield. Previously, scientists thought that only one species of electric eel existed in the world. But through genetic testing, the researchers realized that the eel is actually three species that live in different regions and types of habitats within the area. The eels use their shocking power to hunt for prey, and the record-holding eel lives in waters that do not conduct electricity very efficiently, so they need to give out a greater shock. The research team published news of the new species in the journal Nature Communications. 
And that's it for this week's science news headlines from the Finger Lakes. Thanks for tuning in to Locally Sourced Science. Now, here's the newest member of the Locally Sourced Science team. Megan McElroy is a student at Ithaca College, majoring in journalism and environmental science. She spoke with Ithaca College Associate Professor Chris Sinton, who is a member of the Department of Environmental Studies and Sciences. He does research on soils and sediments. Here, he discusses the benefits of keeping forested areas undisturbed. So the the big picture is, if you make a decision to keep a forested area or keep it pristine, so for example, the Finger Finger Lakes Land Trust will put uh, forested land aside so it's not developed. If you disturb that forest, if you cut down the trees and let's say you, you disturb the soil again to use for agriculture, a lot of that carbon stored there is going to go back in the atmosphere. It's going to be eroded away and end up, say, in the lake. Um, by keeping the area undisturbed, you keep that carbon in the soil. So if that can be translated not just to Ithaca College but across the world by maintaining forests or keeping forests, you keep carbon in the ground, not in the atmosphere. The other part is, uh, I guess, a financial aspect. People who own forested areas, forest land, can they make money by keeping their forests intact? For example, those companies that sell carbon credits, can a landowner be paid to keep their forest intact if they know how much carbon is being taken in every year? Uh, by their land. So let's say someone wants to go out uh, to California on a jet plane. They want to offset their carbon footprint by buying carbon certificates. Does a landowner have an incentive not to log their land and keep it pristine and make some money off of that? This is mostly, it's really with the forested area, with the, with the trees, because it's the soil carbon accumulation is very slow. It's faster with the trees, and so we can measure that, say, in, in five years. We measure the tree size now, five years later we measure the tree size then, we can calculate how much carbon is taken in. And so so you said that, um, that the tree part of this thing is taking like five-ish years. What's the scope of the soil part of this? With the trees, if we measure them one year, and we, we measure subplots of them, we're not measuring every single tree, uh, if we... Um, we calculate how much organic carbon is there at one time in one year. The trees grow fast enough and at five years we can measure a difference in their size and that way calculate an average annual sequestration of carbon through photosynthesis in those, those trees. Some of the literature shows that the soil, the soil carbon is much slower to accumulate. So let's say we go to a certain location and we say that the topsoil is 20 centimeters deep and has 6% organic carbon in it. I don't expect in five years it's going to change a whole lot. So it's, it's more of a static measure. How much is there now um, that has built up over the, the decades uh, plus since this area has stopped being used for agriculture? Like, I feel like saying, like, I study dirt. Like, it's kind of like a funny thing to say. Do yeah. you, like, how did you get into this? Or, like, do you find this interesting? Or, like, what's what's your personal take on yeah, this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I pretty much find anything having to do with the earth 
pretty interesting. Right. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trained as a soil scientist, so part of it is certainly a learning experience for me. Um, I think part of the motivation is trying to find research topics for students that are local and relevant. Uh, local so they don't have to go very far. You don't have to jump in a car and burn fossil fuels to to do your research. It's right here in our backyard. Um, and when it's closer, sometimes it's it's more relevant to people off campus. So there's a there's a, a pedagogical reason to choose it, but then also just the topic itself I find I find interesting. Cool. What I think what I also like to do is with something like this where you you measure something locally and then let's say you expand it to the state level or U.S. or region level, you start looking at the a pretty large amount of carbon is taken in by forests. It's a major component in the natural carbon cycle, and it's possible that it is one of many ways to try and mitigate our carbon emissions. And of course that matters to everyone. Right. Matters to my students, matters to my children. I think when someone is buying a carbon offset, they should really know where that's coming from. Is it coming from people being paid to keep their forest pristine? So for example, Amazon Rainforest, which of course had was in the news, can Brazil or landowners of Brazil make more money by maintaining their forests rather than burning them for agriculture or grazing? And people think about planting a tree. Again, that was Ithaca College Associate Professor Chris Sinton. And finally, here is Luisa Torres with this week's Science Events Calendar. I'm Luisa Torres, and this is the Science Events Calendar. The Ithaca Climate Action Rally will be held on September 20th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Stewart Park in Ithaca. Among the speakers at the rally will be New York Assemblywoman Barbara Lipton, Democratic candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives Tracy Mitrano, and Anne Armstrong, author of Communicated Climate Change, a guide for a global climate strike. Following the rally, Discover Cayuga Lake is running a special cruise from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring a discussion of climate change and local watersheds. From September 17th through September 26th, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., visit the summer exhibit called Pollination, Artists Crossing Borders with Scientists to Explore the Value of Pollinator Health at the Mann Library Gallery at Cornell. The exhibit showcases the results of a multi-year collaboration between Cornell entomologists, UK-based scientists, and Welsh artists who work to reveal and celebrate the beauty and importance of pollinators, and how their fate is linked to our planet and to our own. Until only recently, science has generally been associated with the work of men, but while men received the credit and fame for advances in knowledge, women too contributed significantly. Many women provided the illustrations of plants and made the botanical text of the 18th and 19th centuries the vivid, beautiful, and scientifically accurate works that they are. Sadly, a significant portion of these talented women have had the details of their lives lost to time, despite creating work both meaningful and important to the field. 
With an eye towards bringing some of these hidden pioneers of science into the spotlight, Unturned Leaves, Early Women in Botanical Illustration, showcases the achievements of several pre-20th century women who drew and painted plants and fungi, sometimes in support of the seminal works of their day, and sometimes primarily to support of their own personal effort to document and understand the natural world around them. The Mann Library has developed this exhibit with the Heart Natural History Celebration, sponsored by partners of the Biodiversity Heritage Library for Women's History Month. You can visit the exhibit at the Mann Library at Cornell from now through September 26, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. To learn more about these and other events, please visit events.cornell.edu. I'm Luisa Torres, and that was your Science Events Calendar. You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I produce today's show. Mark Sharvari produced the segment about the film Dirt Rich, and Megan McElroy interviewed Dr. Chris Sinton of Ithaca College. Patricia Waldron produced the Science News, and Luisa Torres wrote and recorded the Science Events Calendar. We thank Joe Lewis and Cece Giannotti for our theme music and Blue Dot Sessions for their music. You can listen to Locally Sourced Science every other Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on WRFI.org. The show is replayed the following Thursday at 4 p.m. Our next new show will be broadcast on Tuesday, October 1st. And you can also subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Head to our website at LocallySourceScience.org for podcast links and our show archive. You can also tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Send us questions and suggestions at LocallySourceScience at gmail.com. Science out.